0: Section 2. Expropriation, such then is the problem which history has put before the men of the 20th century, the return to communism in all that ministers to the well-being of man. But this problem cannot be solved by means of legislation. No one imagines that. The poor as well as the rich understand that neither the existing governments, nor any which might arise out of possible political changes, would be capable of finding such a solution. They feel the necessity of a social revolution, and both rich and poor recognize that this revolution is imminent, that it may break out in a few years. A great change in thought has taken place during the last half of the 19th century, but suppressed, as it was, by the propertized classes and denied its natural development, this new spirit must now break its bonds by violence and realize itself in a revolution. Whence will the revolution come? How will it announce its coming? No one can answer these questions. The future is hidden. But those who watch and think do not misinterpret the signs. Workers and exploiters, revolutionists and conservatives, thinkers and men of action, all feel that a revolution is at our doors. Well, then, what are we going to do when the thunderbolt has fallen? We have all been bent on studying the dramatic side of revolution so much and the practical work of revolution so little that we are apt to see only the stage effects, so to speak, of these great movements. The fight of the first days, the barricades, but this fight, this first skirmish is soon ended, and it is only after the breakdown of the old systems that the real work of revolution can be said to begin. Effete and powerless, attacked on all sides, The old rulers are soon swept away by the breath of insurrection. In a few days, the middle-class monarchy of 1848 was no more, and while Louis-Philippe was making good his escape in a cab, Paris had already forgotten her citizen-king. The government of theirs disappeared on the 18th of March, 1871, in a few hours, leaving Paris mistress of her destinies. Yet 1848 and 1871 were only insurrections. Before a popular revolution, the masters of the old order disappear with a surprising rapidity. Its upholders fly the country, to plot in safety elsewhere and to devise measures for their return. The former government having disappeared, the army, hesitating before the tide of popular opinion, no longer obeys its commanders, who have also prudently decamped. The troops stand by without interfering or join the rebels. The police, standing at ease, are uncertain whether to belabor the crowd or to cry, long live the commune, while some retire to their quarters to await the pleasure of the new government. Wealthy citizens pack their trunks and betake themselves to places of safety. The people remain. This is how a revolution is ushered in. In several large towns, the commune is proclaimed. In the streets wander scores of thousands of men, and in the evening they crowd into improvised clubs, asking, what shall we do? and ardently discuss public affairs. All take an interest in them, those who yesterday were quite indifferent are perhaps the most zealous. Everywhere there is plenty of goodwill and a keen desire to make victory certain. It is a time when acts of supreme devotion are occurring. The masses of the people are full of the desire of going forward. All of this is splendid, sublime, but still it is not a revolution. Nay, it is only now that the work of the revolutionist begins. Doubtless there will be acts of vengeance. The Watchrins and the Thomases will pay the penalty of their unpopularity, but these are mere incidents of the struggle, not the revolution. Social politicians, radicals, neglected geniuses of journalism, stump orators, both middle-class people and workmen, will hurry to the town hall, to the government offices, to take possession of the vacant seats. Some will decorate themselves with gold and silver lace to their heart's content, admire themselves in ministerial mirrors, and study to give orders with an air of importance appropriate to their new position. How could they impress their comrades of the office or the workshop without having a red sash, an embroidered cap, and magisterial gestures? Others will bury themselves in official papers, trying with the best of wills to make head or tail of them. They will indict laws and issue high-flown worded decrees that nobody will take the trouble to carry out because revolution has come. To give themselves an authority which they have not, they will seek the sanction of old forms of government. They will take the names of provisional government, committee of public safety, mayor, governor of the town hall, commissioner of public safety, and what not, Elected or acclaimed, they will assemble in boards or in communal councils where men of 10 or 20 different schools will come together, representing not as many private chapels as it is often said, but as many different conceptions regarding the scope, the bearing and the goal of the revolution. Possibilists, collectivists, radicals, jacobins, blankists will be thrust together and waste time in wordy warfare. Honest men will be huddled together with the ambitious ones, whose only dream is power, and who spurn the crowd whence they are sprung. All coming together with diametrically opposed views, all forced to enter into ephemeral alliances, in order to create majorities that can but last a day. Wrangling, calling each other reactionaries, authoritarians and rascals, incapable of coming to an understanding on any serious measure, dragged into discussions about trifles, producing nothing better than bombastic proclamations, all giving themselves an awful importance while the real strength of the movement is in the streets. All this may please those who like the stage, but it is not revolution, nothing has been accomplished yet. And meanwhile, the people suffer, the factories are idle, the workshops closed, trade is at a standstill. The worker does not even earn the meager wage which was his before. Food goes up in price, With that heroic devotion which has always characterized them, and in which great crises reaches the sublime, the people will wait patiently. We place these three months of want at the service of the Republic, they said in 1848, while their representatives, and the gentlemen of the new government, down to the meanest jack-in-office, receive their salary regularly. The people suffer, with the childlike faith, with the good humor of the masses who believe in their leaders. They think that yonder, in the house, in the town hall, in the Committee of Public Safety, their welfare is being considered. But yonder, they are discussing everything under the sun except the welfare of the people. In 1793, while famine ravaged France and crippled the revolution, whilst the people were reduced to the depths of misery, although the Champs-Élysées were lined with luxurious carriages where women displayed their jewels and splendor, Robespierre was urging the Jacobins to discuss his treaties on the English Constitution. While the worker was suffering in 1848 from general stoppage of trade, the provisional government and the National Assembly were wrangling over military pensions and prison labor, without troubling how the people managed to live during the terrible crisis. And one could cast a reproach at the Paris Commune, which was born beneath the Prussian cannon and lasted only 70 days. It would be for this same error. This failure to understand that the revolution could not triumph unless those who fought on its side were fed, that on 15 pence a day a man cannot fight on the ramparts and at the same time support a family. The people suffer and say, how is a way out of these difficulties to be found?